Well, what an exciting day we have in store for us. This is a rare treat to be able to come together and really for a parenthesis in time, focus our attention on something as noble and wonderful as preaching the Word of God. Um, I, I have been looking forward to this for some time. And now it's here, and now you're here, and so I, I, I feel a sense of destiny about this, that God has appointed this time for us to be together, for our paths to cross. I know God has great purposes uh, for your life and for my life as we meet today, as iron sharpens iron, so one man another. And I can only pray that we can help one another and sharpen one another in this uh, calling of expository preaching. As we begin this, I'm aware that we're at all different levels of preaching. Uh, Some of you have been preaching for 30 years, 40 years, and I've got you on one end of the spectrum, and I have others of you who are in Bible college, you're in seminary, you're anticipating the day when you graduate and you'll be planted in a church and maybe even start out as an associate and one day then be in the pulpit week by week by week. So I've got you on the other end of the spectrum. In fact, I've got some here this morning who are just thinking about, praying about going to Bible college, going to seminary. And, and so to try to hit everyone in this one opportunity is going to be a little bit of a challenge for me. Some of you may want me to push down on the gas pedal a little more, and, uh, and I'll, I'll do that for you from time to time in this. And others of you are going to be riding the brakes and saying, would I repeat that? And, and, and I didn't get that the first time. And so I, I just want to try to get my arms around everyone. Um, As we do this, uh, I want this to be interactive. Uh, Normally in a conference we have designated times of Q&A, and we may even have that on the schedule, and we'll have some designated times for Q&A. But I want you to feel free to just raise your hand and ask me a question, because I've come here to talk to you, and not necessarily just go through my notes. Uh, My goal is to help you however I can uh, as it relates to preaching. Um, I'm not going to be able to answer every question about theology, church history, Hebrew language, Greek. I'm not going to be able to say to you everything that it would take four years for you to go to seminary. I've got a day and a half with you. So I I can't cover the entirety of of what you would receive in four years of seminary. That's just totally impossible. This is not a shotgun where there's a wide disbursement. This is more a rifle shot um, at a narrow target, which is to help someone stand in a pulpit with an open Bible and to preach the Word of God. So that's my focus. Um, As you ask uh, your questions, try to state it as succinctly as as possible. Um, We love you, but we don't need your entire life story. 
Uh, we would love to hear your entire life story in heaven. Uh, <laughs> one day and when we have eternity. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just try to, you know, state it in as succinctly as possible. My wife tells me I don't always listen well and don't always hear the question and I can give an answer that goes in another direction and she'll tell me in the car driving home you misunderstood the question and so allow me some grace uh, for that. Um, so, but this is just going to be a, a wonderful time. And it says, it speaks volumes really about you, that you would be here today. It tells me you have a very keen interest in the ministry of the Word of God. Uh, I just want to come alongside of you and put some wind in your sails. I, I just want to come alongside of you and, and help get you to the next level, if, if, if that could be achievable uh, in the time that we have. And again, I, I want to scratch where you itch. I, I want to address uh, the questions that you have. So as we go through this, please, the, the interaction will add a dynamic uh, to the time that we will spend together. The spontaneity of your questions kind of catching me off guard will add a, uh, some energy because I, I, I don't want this, I don't want to just stand here all day and just like have my head buried and go through notes. I, I want to have a tennis match with you. Uh, I, I want you to put a ball and serve. I want to return it, see if I can return it, and then I want to see if you can return it back to me and and, uh, and, and we'll see how this works out, all right? So to, to begin our time, I, I guess you also need to know, or you're probably aware, did, did, did some of you receive hard copy for the, for the notes? And I think, uh, yeah, Tim? Yeah, okay, that would be everybody. <laughs> that, would be, that would be everyone. So I'll just keep talking for a little bit. In fact, while they're passing these out, let me ask you a question. What would you like to, 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 to take from this? Why are you here? What would you like to, to derive from this? So I, I, it's hard for me to know if your hand's up for a handout. <laughs> so, so just yell it out. Just, you, just tell me. What, what do you want from this? Because the only reason I'm asking is I, I want to steer the tip of the arrow to the target of what you have. Yeah. 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 So, how long have you been preaching? Okay. So, I've been a minister for four months, preaching for three years. What are you preaching through right now? You're in the. That's a great place to be. Excellent. That's a, that's a great place to start to take a manageable size book 
you know, not start off with Genesis and, and you go into a 12-year study. Um, <laughs> you know, to start with a book, you can get your arms around. The, 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 the paragraph divisions are very obvious and clear. It's easy to get good commentaries uh, and resources to help you. Um, that, that, that's a wise choice to start with. And, and, and I'll just say this. You need to preach as much as you can right now. Because if you, if you were learning to play the piano, Melinda, Melinda's been playing the piano, do you think more practice or less practice would help her play like that? The more practice, obviously. If you're trying to play the violin, more practice, less practice. I, I think most pastors do not preach enough in order to reach the effectiveness they could have in the pulpit. They preach way too little. And so I would just encourage you, how old are you? 33. That's a great year. They, they crucified Jesus at age 30. <laughs> so anything beyond this, anything beyond age 33 is gravy, okay? So <laughs> um, I would just encourage you to preach as much as you can right now. Just create venues for you to preach, to exercise your gift, to learn your commentaries, to learn your own style, to learn how you put notes together, to stand on your feet, to learn how to look into people's eyes. And, and the, the more you can do it in your 30s, it, it's going to pay huge dividends down the road. Don't cut corners when you're in your 30s. Do the heavy lifting. Dig it out of the text. That's good. Someone else, what, what would you like to... What's the take-home for this? Other than getting free e-books. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I think we'll address that because there are enormous pressures today from even within your own church to not to be an expositor. And, and hopefully, as we go through this, I can be persuasive with you because expository preaching is simply biblical preaching. And if you're not for biblical preaching, get out of the ministry. Um, or go find another church. We're not going to play games with you. Uh, we're not here to entertain you. We're, we're not here to give you psychobabble. We're here to bring the Bible. We're men under mandate. We, we, we have been charged by God to preach the Bible. And that's what expository preaching is in its most pure expression. There are different levels of expository preaching, and there are different... Um, degrees on the spectrum of expository preaching, but I agree with John Stott. If it's not expository, it's not Christian. And I'll add, if it's not expository, it's suppository. Um, I don't know what you're doing if if it's not expository. 
Now, there are different kinds, and we'll talk about it. There's, there, there are different methods of expository preaching. The first is start in chapter 1, verse 1, and preach your way all the way through a book in the Bible. I think, personally, that should be the meat and potatoes. But there are five or six other methods of expository preaching that I'm going to talk about. And so, when we talk about expository preaching, there's more than simply preaching through books in the Bible. But I think that should be your hallmark. And if you're not doing that, then the other five or six ways of doing expository preaching are not going to fly. Now, I, I was just at with John, John MacArthur two weeks ago in Los Angeles, and he and I were teaching a class on preaching together, and he made a very profound statement in the course of the class. He said, the Bible is not a collection of verses. It's a collection of books. And these books are made up of verses. But if you're just tap dancing through verses, you're not preaching it the way God wrote it because God had it written in books, not in individual verses that can just be cherry-picked. Now, we will talk about um, thematic exposition, doctrinal exposition, which could be called topical exposition. Now, as soon as you say the word topical, that springs a lot of different pictures and images. Um, But it is a legitimate form of expository preaching. But we'll talk about all of that, and hopefully um, it will help deepen your roots in what it is that God has called you to do. It's very helpful to hear that. There was another hint back there that I saw, which you would like as a a take-home. Yes, sir. Yeah, are you talking about interpretation? Okay. All right, that's an entire seminary class on hermeneutics. In fact, that might be two classes on hermeneutics. And uh, there's a difference between homiletics and hermeneutics. This is going to be predominantly homiletics on how to preach, how to deliver the message. Now, we're going to touch on hermeneutics, but it's going to be kind of a speed bump and because there's just so much. Now, I'll, can I recommend a book to you that uh, is an, it's it's an easy-to-read book on interpreting the Bible? It's called Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Zuck, Z-U-C-K. Do you have that book? Yeah, I, thought, I see you smiling already. All right, you need to read that book twice a year, all right? <laughs> it, it's a great book, and, and I still refer to it uh, to help me, and it covers the whole gambit of all of the literary, thank you, Tim, uh, literary genres. <laughs> yeah, let me plop it down on that side. It's, it's, it's really interesting when you travel. I travel. I just kind of live on the road preaching in all different places, what is a pulpit and what is a lectern? And it's really interesting what, where, where you end up standing and what's put in front of you. That, that is a mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> right there. I call that an igloo. 
And uh, th- that, that is a pulpit, all right? And then it's interesting, these lecterns, there's a pitch to them. And so no matter if you put your notes there, they just slide down to the bottom and slide off. Um, these things are made for like music stands or something. But anyway, um, basic Bible interpretation. It's so easy to read. It's like eating candy. I mean, it's just, you don't have to strain to read it at all. Everybody in the room ought to have basic Bible interpretation and master uh, those chapters because it really is the, the art of interpretation. This, excuse me, the science of interpretation, what God has called us to. Let me say this also by way of introduction. There is the art and there is the science of expository preaching. The science part are the laws of interpretation and the laws of language and the laws of communication. There should be no difference in this room between any one of us in the science of expository preaching. Uh, The laws of interpretation are the same for everybody in this room. You don't get a different interpretation than I have, and I don't, I'm not allowed a different interpretation and play by a different set of rules. We all should have one interpretation of the same passage. That is the science part, as well as basic laws of communication. That's the same for everyone in this room. But there's also the art of expository preaching. And the art differs from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. For example, it was mentioned, our our brother is preaching through the book of Ephesians. If I was to assign here today the same passage out of Ephesians to everyone in this room, and I want you to write out an expository sermon and turn it in to me, and if I were to assign you Ephesians 2, 1, uh, 1 through 10, Every sermon that's turned into me ought to be distinctively different. Otherwise, I know there's plagiarism going on. There ought to be, if if we have 100-plus people in here today, there ought to be 100-plus introductions. There ought to be 100-plus outlines. There ought to be 100-plus different illustrations. There ought to be 100-plus different conclusions. Uh, Your temperament, your personality is uniquely you. Your background, the people that you minister to are at a certain place and they have a certain background and they have certain needs. There would be one interpretation, many applications. One interpretation, many ways to serve that one meal that has been prepared. So... um, It's important that you distinguish between the art and the science of expository preaching. Uh, The exegesis is the same. The packaging of that will be uniquely you, and you need to be you. You you don't need to be John MacArthur. You don't need to be Martin Lloyd-Jones. You need to learn from John MacArthur. You need to learn from Martin Lloyd-Jones. You need to learn from Spurgeon and learn from James Montgomery Boyce, but you need to be you, and your voice needs to come through uh, the preaching of the Word. Well, this is good just to initially even interact with you um, uh, a little bit. 
to start this, uh, to take your Bibles, and uh, let's start with the Bible, okay? Um, turn to the signature passage in the entire Bible on expository preaching, and that would be 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let, let, let's just begin by looking into the Scripture and affirming what it is that we're talking about today, that it's rooted and grounded not in Los Angeles or Geneva or Wittenberg or Edinburgh or London or Johannesburg. It's rooted and grounded in a prison cell in Rome. In fact, it goes back earlier than that. It's, it's rooted and grounded with Moses at the end of the wilderness wanderings. It's rooted and grounded at, at the Watergate in Jerusalem with Ezra. Uh, it's rooted and grounded in, 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 in Jerusalem with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. It's rooted and grounded with Peter on the day of Pentecost. So I, I, I want to go back to the very beginning, because expository preaching did not begin with the Reformation. Uh, Expository preaching did not begin with Victorian England. Expository preaching is rooted and grounded in the Bible itself. And that's why I said to the brother earlier that, quoting John Stott, if it's not expository, it's, it's not Christian, because this is what God has called us to do. We, we are under mandate to be expositors of the Word of God. So let me just begin by, by, by reading this passage. And, and as I set it up, the, the year is 67 AD. And these are the last words that we'll ever hear from the Apostle Paul. It will be shortly thereafter. They will pull him out of this prison cell, the Mamantine prison, and they'll take him out to the ocean way, and they will sever his head, tradition tells us. Paul wrote 13 epistles. This is the last chapter of the last epistle. This is the last communication that we have from Paul. And so this is no time to be talking about secondary matters. This is no time to be talking about matters of lesser importance. This is the time to go to the summit. This is the time to go to the pinnacle, and whatever you have to say is your dying words, tell us. So, there's a saying in America, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, okay? This is the main thing if you're in ministry. If you do anything, do this. So, last words should be lasting words. So, this is what Paul has to say. This is his swan song. And as he says this, the, the gospel baton is being passed down to young Timothy. And not just to Timothy, but to you and to me. And there's blood on this baton. And it's come down to us on a sea of blood from century to century as this is in the inspired word of the living God. There's a reason why this is in the canon of Scripture. It's to speak to every preacher on every continent in every generation in every century, and there's no coloring outside these lines. It's, it, all that we are to do is contained 
within these verses. Obviously, there are other passages that will enrich and enhance what we have here. So this is what Paul says to Timothy, but to make this personal, that's what Paul says to you and to me. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with much patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, and you can just see Paul pointing a finger at Timothy, though Timothy's not in that prison cell with him. Just even read this, you just almost have to go, but you, it, it is so emphatic. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Nothing has changed over the last 2,000 years. These are orders from headquarters. It matters to God not only what you say, but how you say it. None of us are free to reinvent preaching. None of us are free to come up with a new approach to the pulpit. If it's new, it's not true. So let's go through this passage. This is here in this pastoral epistle to guide every preacher in what God has called him to do. So, just to kind of break this out homiletically, let me give you just a couple headings here. Let's start with the sobriety of this charge. As I read verse 1, I can't think of any language that's more sobering than what I read here. In, in America, we would say this is as serious as a heart attack. You know, this is no nonsense. So he begins, he says, I solemnly charge you. That just grabs me by the lapels and just kind of pulls me up in my seat to sit up straight as I, as I, as I hear this. I solemnly charge you. This is a military term that is a command that is given from an officer of higher rank to one of lower rank. And as Paul is an apostle, he is speaking with divine authority because of the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. This is an apostolic command that requires full compliance uh, with what follows. I solemnly charge you. And then to just cinch the knot tighter, to cinch the noose tighter, he adds this, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, as though 
God the Father and God the Son are flanking him on both sides. And as he speaks, he is speaking with solidarity with the Father and the Son. In reality, he is the mouthpiece who is speaking on behalf of the Father and the Son. This is what the Trinity has to say to every preacher. I'm I'm locked into this. And then to cinch the knot even tighter with our accountability and our responsibility to God as we step into a pulpit, he, he then adds this, who is to judge the living and the dead? I mean, I, I got it when he just simply said, I solemnly charge you. I doubly have it as he adds in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. Now he adds, who, referring to Christ, the antecedent, who is to judge the living and the dead? The Father has given all judgment to the Son, right? And we, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And don't think just because you're saved that there's not going to be a final judgment for you. You're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you will not stand there as a sinner before a judge. You will stand there as a servant before his master. And all of us who are called by God into this ministry of Bible exposition, we will give an account directly to the head of the church, to the Lord Jesus Christ, for every sermon that we preach. And not only what we say, I believe even how we say it. And we will answer to the head of the church. That's why James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. So there is a stricter judgment for us. And 1 Corinthians 3 says that he will test the quality of each man's work, whether he is built with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And so our pulpit ministry will be tested as by fire. And that which is wood, hay, and stubble will, will just go up in smoke. It will have counted, accounted for nothing. You would have just wasted your life and squandered your ministry. I think it refers to the message. I think it refers to the motive. I think it refers to the method. The whole package. But those who build with gold, silver, and precious stones, when they are put through the fire, it only purifies gold, silver, and precious stones. And it remains. And the Lord says, that which remains, you shall receive a reward. So there is coming a final day of accountability that every preacher will have as we stand before the Lord, and it will be a stricter accountability. Why? Because unto whom much is given, the same shall be required. That's why in days past, when men were called into the ministry, no one answered giggling. They they answered with tears. 
When John Knox was called into the ministry in the St. Andrew's Castle, it was a public service, a worship service like this, and they had just martyred George Whishart, who was the mentor of John Knox, and John Knox literally was his sword bearer. It was so dangerous to be a preacher in the, at, the, at that time in Scotland that George Whishart had to have a man with a broadsword, not a dagger, but a large broadsword that could cut someone's head off. That's, how, that's what John Knox was. And he accompanied George Whishart as a bodyguard to get him in and out of meetings. And when the time came to arrest George Whishart and to, to martyr him, he gave the famous line to, to John Knox as he pulled the broadsword and was ready to fight to the death for his, his mentor, Whishart said, one sacrifice is enough. And by that, he meant, for them to martyr me is enough. You run to preach another day. That's how John Knox really got into the ministry. So he goes into the St. Andrew's Castle and begins to expound the Gospel of John in what we would call a small group Bible study, and the men inside the castle begin to notice this man is gifted. This man knows how to take the Word of God and open it up and to, to bring it home. And so they're gathered on a Sunday, and it's a, a public service like this, and the preacher in the middle of the service calls out John Knox and says, you, sir, are called into the ministry. Knox, understanding the weight of this, got up and ran out of the service and went to his room and locked the door and wept like a baby and wouldn't come out until this had settled into the depths of his heart and soul. Uh, the, the gravitas, the, the, the weightiness of this. And he finally came out and was ready to assume the mantle of being a preacher of the Word of God. When we understand what Paul is saying here in verse 1, we can understand why someone like John Knox would be dissolved in tears. As I say this, I want to say, if I had a hundred lives, I'd give every one of them to the preaching of the Word of God. It is the, I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones, it is the highest, the greatest calling to ever come upon any man, and it is the greatest need in the church. You have invested your life well if you have stepped forward to answer the call of God. But there is no there is no neglecting the reality that it is an awesome and what they would have said years ago, an awful call, because there will be this stricter accountability. Now that's the sobriety. Second, I want you to see the substance of this charge. It's the first three words in verse 2. And let me tell you how this lays out grammatically. Verses 2 through 5, there are nine successive imperative verbs that are laid out in staccato fashion. Boom, 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 boom. 
in verses 2 through 9, 2 through 5. The first is at the beginning of verse 2, and it's like the umbrella over everything that follows. It's like the topic sentence in a, in a paragraph. Everything else fits under it. And the last eight imperative verbs that we're going to look at tell us how to fulfill preach the Word. But the main thrust here, the substance of this charge, is preach the Word. What follows is how you preach the Word. I'll call that the specifics of this charge. So, let's look here at the substance of this charge in verse 2. It's, it's very straightforward. It's very simple. Preach the Word. And this is the heart and soul of expository preaching. Um, this is expository preaching reduced to its most basic charge. This is the engine that's driving the car. This is preach the Word. Now, we need to understand what this means. First of all, the word preach. Please note it's not share. It's not share the Word. It's not mumble the Word. It's not even teach the Word. It's not lecture the Word. It is preach the Word. A young man once came to Martin Lloyd-Jones and asked him, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And Lloyd-Jones, with that dry British sarcasm, said, young man, if you have to ask me the difference between teaching and preaching, it's obvious you have never heard preaching. Because if you've heard preaching, you wouldn't ask me the difference. Preaching is a higher gear shift. There's a different tone and trajectory to preaching. And please note the charge. It's to preach the Word. Caruso. It's drawn from the ancient culture, the Roman Empire. Caesar is in Rome. Caesar issues decrees. He has heralds in the palace. They're summoned before the throne. Caesar issues his decrees to his heralds. They are dispersed into the empire. They go to the, to the perimeters of the empire where there is no communication that can go except heralds be sent out. They go into a village. They gather the people around them. He is there as the representative of, of Caesar himself. And even as how he presents himself is a direct reflection upon the high throne of, of Rome. He's not the court gesture. He is the herald of Caesar. And he is to, to cup his hands and to lift his voice and to say something like this, Hear ye, hear ye this day. Rome has won a great victory. 
And there is another kingdom annexed into the empire. Or he used to say something like this. Caesar has a son, a newborn son. There is an heir to the throne of Rome. He is not to enter into negotiation with the people. He is to give the message as it had been entrusted to him. And he is to give it in, with authority. He is to give it with dignity. He is to give it with urgency. He is to give it with finality. This is the message. He is to then depart and return to Rome and wait for the next decree to be entrusted to him. And he must give an account to Caesar. And the success of the mission lies not in the response of the people. The success of the mission lies in the faithfulness of the herald to preach, proclaim the fullness of the message. It's the word preach. There is a certain intensity. There is a certain fervency. There is, I've already said, an authority. And there is a dignity. He's he's not to stand up and be perceived as a goofball. He's not to stand up and be perceived as a comedian. He's not to stand up and come across in any other way other than the one whom he represents. Preach. The Word. Now, note, the Word. This refers to the written Word of God. Not little supposed suppose voices you're hearing. It's the written Word of God. It's very clear in, the, in this context. In chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture. You know what the word Scripture means? Writings. Graphe. Graphics. Written. You, you are to take the written Word of God and to preach it and confine your message to the written Word of God. In the previous verse, chapter 3, verse 15, it's referred to, note, there it is in your Bible, the sacred writings. That's what he's talking about when he says the Word, the sacred writings. Earlier in chapter 2 and verse 15, just kind of working our way backwards in, in 2 Timothy, it's referred to the Word of Truth. The word truth here means reality. It's the way things really are. It's what God says something is. It's not what the culture says something is. It is counterintuitive to the culture. Uh, It it is not what the majority thinks something is. It's not what you think something is. It's what God says something is. That's what the truth is. God is the God of truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. We're in the truth business of unpacking the truth and bringing it home. In chapter 2, verse 9, it is the Word of God. That means the Word that comes down from God. What we have to say has no origin whatsoever in the world in which we live. It has come down to us 
from another world. It has come down from the throne of God. It is the very truth of God and it is the wisdom of God that we bring to people. In chapter 2, verse 6, it is the rules of the game. I, I know some antinomians and some hyper-grace people don't want, they, they choke over the word rules. They just want freedom in Christ in all things without any confinement to the imperative commands and the examples in Scripture. But in chapter 2, verse 6, it says that we are to be like the, the, the athlete excuse me, I have verse 6, it's actually verse 5. We are to be like the athlete, and we will not win the prize unless we compete according to the rules. The rules are contained in the written Word of God. And then earlier in chapter 1, verse 13, this written Scripture is the standard of sound words. And he says, retain the standard of sound words. In the next verse, verse 14, it's the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That's the value and the preciousness of the written word of God that has been entrusted to you. This is the substance of the charge. So we're not free to go off in other directions and, and, and draw from the culture and draw from the world and, and draw from the denomination and draw from our tradition and et cetera, et cetera. We are sola scriptura people. Scripture alone. Spurgeon said, I will not believe a matter unless you can put a finger on chapter and verse. Uh, Calvin said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And it is our fundamental commitment to what the Word is that drives us to preach the Word. So, you're, you're like the, the, the waiter at a restaurant. You don't cook the meal. All your job is to do is take it and put it on the table and deliver it as hot as you can. Don't bring me cold potatoes. Now, finally, I want you to see the specifics of this charge. And this is all germane to what we're going to be talking about. Because I don't want to just give you techniques. I don't want to just give you, you know, if you'll just do this and that, then you'll be... Uh, effective, if, you've, if you're building on sand, I don't want to help you. I want you to collapse so that you'll go to the rock and stand on the rock of divine revelation and then preach the Word. So this is all necessary for us to even understand what it is that we're talking about. This is Paul at the end of his life with all of the experience, with all of the maturity, and with the direction of the Holy Spirit, he is writing this to us to to be the wind in our sails to propel us in the right direction. So, let's look now at the specifics of this charge. What follows 
are eight imperative verbs that come in rapid-fire succession. And let me just say this. This is not a multiple-choice list. (laughs) You don't get to pick and choose out of these eight. You know, with my temperament and my personality, three of these just work wonderfully well with me. And and I'll go with these three. And maybe ten years from now when I mature and grow up and and the kids leave home, then I'll pick up the next three. And No, it's all or nothing. Now, we're going to be stronger in some of these than in others, and part of this is we all need to see where we're weak and shore up what needs to be made stronger. But these are all non-negotiable. These are, none of these are optional. All of these are mandatory. All of these are in, in the imperative mood, which means they are a command None of these we can take or leave. Every one of these must be embraced and owned and carried out. And by the way, this is why we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. For, for who is adequate for this? Uh, I mean, in America, we would say this is big boy football. I mean, you're going to have to put your big boy pants on and... and as Phil Johnson said, man up. So look at this. All right, here's the first verb of these eight. Be ready. It means be on the alert. Be ready to act at a moment's notice. Be prepared, be, be locked and loaded, and, and with, with suddenness. The idea here is it's a military term, a, a soldier who's ready for battle at a moment's notice. You've already got the arrow in the bow, and it is pulled back, and you are ready to to preach at a moment's notice. The idea is a a constant vigil. Your hand is on the sword, and you are ready to unsheath the sword in every situation and in every circumstance. And he explains that by the next words, in season and out of season. That's what we would call a colloquial expression, an idiomatic expression that, that is figurative. And what that simply means is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, there is no season other than in season or out of season. Can you think of another season? I mean, your, your, your chuckle reveals there is no other season. That's Paul's way to say something in a way that lodges into the mind and is memorable. In season and, and, and out of season, there is constant readiness in the ideas when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. When people want it and when people don't want it. When it will be welcomed and when it is unwelcomed. Listen, anyone can preach to the choir... What's the challenge is to preach when you know these hard sayings are going to be hard to swallow. But you're going to have to be ready, not hesitant, not in reverse gear. Be ready in season and out of season. It's a mindset. You don't hold anything back. You don't talk out of both sides of your mouth and have one thing to say on Sunday morning and something else to say on Wednesday night. You've got the same message wherever you are and you're ready to give it. 
Second is the word reprove. It means to expose what is wrong. It begins with false doctrine. False worldview. False perspective on life. We have to expose that. That's what this conference is doing. False doctrine. False teaching. But it's more than that. It's also wrong attitudes. And wrong priorities. And wrong words. And wrong actions. And wrong reactions. And that's why we have to preach the full counsel of God, and bring the light to shine into dark places. It's the light that exposes those things hidden in darkness. It's one of the functions of the law. The moral law of God is to expose sin. If you're not reproving, you're not preaching. If you're not reproving, you're just chatting. You're just talking. Then rebuke. The word rebuke is very important because it means to warn, uh, to admonish, uh, to sound an alarm. And it couples with reprove in this sense. Not only do we expose what is wrong, but we also then sound the warning that if you continue on this path, there are painful consequences to wrong decisions. We, we, We don't preach a what we would call in America, a Pollyanna religion. I mean, you reap what you sow. And you sow sin, you're going to reap painful consequences. It's one of the most loving things that we can do is to warn people. In fact, I mean, just read the Sermon on the Mount. Just read what Jesus does in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 6. I'm not going to take the time to go there. But, I mean, it's just one warning after another after another. I mean, if your right eye makes you stumble, cut it off. It's a call for radical repentance. And if you don't, your whole body is going to end up in hell. Can you imagine preaching like that today? Sex and the one-eyed Christian? If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. But that's how Jesus preached. I mean, there is warning. There is rebuke. If you keep going down this path, it will destroy you, your family, your business, your children, your soul. Then the word exhort. That's the third imperative verb here. He says exhort. And that's a Greek word that means to be called to to one side. The idea would be almost, I step out of this pulpit and I sit down next to you and I personally relate the teaching to you. I come alongside of you. And it's a perfect balance for reprove and rebuke because in this word exhort, it's a multifaceted word that has many different layers of, of meanings, but, but one of it is to comfort and to console. So we both, the old saying, we comfort the afflicted and we afflict the comfortable. I mean, it's a two-edged sword. 
And as you stand to preach, some people, quite frankly, they need a father's rebuke. Other people need a mother's encouragement. And so you've got to have this full spectrum in your preaching to both tear down and to build up. And that's what we see here. The word exhort also carries the idea of urging and pleading. And and there is an element of persuasion and trying to win someone over, not only in the reasoning, but also in how you come across. If I really want you to do something, I don't speak in a mumbled, monotone voice, or what Martin Luther called putting a leaf in front of my mouth. I mean, I'm trying to be as persuasive with you as I possibly can be. Listen, I'm a Calvinist, but I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. I'd rather you be an Arminian than be a hyper-Calvinist. That is the death blow to preaching. Arminians at least have a pulse when they stand in the pulpit. You've got to be exhorting. And sometimes it's with tenderness. And other times it's it's a sharp, edged word. But it's all. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, when we were among you, I was like a nursing mother. Can you think of a more tender picture than a nursing mother? I can't. And then the next verse he goes, and you need to be like a father, imploring and, and exhorting. Children need both. It's not either or, it's both and. Now, some of you grew up in a home with just one, but it's God's design that you have two. And it's the tenderness, the sweetness of a mother. Listen, when I'm sick, I didn't go to my father. And my father was a doctor. (laughs) I want mama. (laughs) And when mom gets sick, we're all in fasting and prayer. We need mama well. Because I want the tenderness. I want you to tuck me in. I want you to bring me things. Pat me on the head. I don't want dad when I'm sick. But I needed dad's discipline. And I needed dad's strong voice. And I needed dads pushing me in life where mom's almost making excuses for me and dad's pulling the rug out from underneath those excuses. It's both and as you stand in the pulpit. The tenderness of a mother. Listen, people are they're, they're being beaten up out in the world. It's not a safe place out there. I'm going to tell you again, just driving to church today, all I see are walls and electrical wires and barbed wire and hyper-security. This isn't a safe place. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, this, uh, Dorothy, this is not Kansas. (laughs) Um, And so people are beaten up. They, They need encouragement when they come to church. I mean, they don't need sinners in the hand of an angry God every time they walk in the building. They need to be built up. But then they also need straight talk from a father. And all of that is inclusive in this word parakaleo, exhort. 
And as you exhort, he says, to do so with much patience. I I need to hear that. I want everyone to be where they need to be in their spiritual growth yesterday. Whatever I teach, I just want you to immediately accept it and go with it. And yet in my own life, it took several years to come to an understanding of certain truths. And it requires patience on our part. Because we're preaching to, to frail people. And please note, it doesn't say just patience. It says much patience. How many times have I walked out the front door of my house, stop on the sidewalk, turn around, say goodbye to my wife, and she'll say this to me. And remember, with much patience... I think, I don't have time for this. <laughs> Much patience. That, that's, that's the pastor's heart. In 2 Timothy 2.24, patient when wronged. Listen, you, you've got to have a tender heart and thick skin to be a preacher. And you've got to hang in there. And sometimes the Lord's going to put you in a church that's not yet reformed. And you're the guy to go there. And you're the guy to bring it about and bring about the change. And you're not turning around a rowboat. You're turning around a battleship. And it's going to take some time. Are you in there for the long haul? Have you you come for seven years, not seven months? Are you ready to invest a decade of your life to turn this thing around? It's going to require much patience. And the word here in the Greek means to bear up under pressure. The the idea is not just that you're sitting at a bus station waiting for the bus to come, and the bus has been stuck in a traffic jam, and so you're just there tapping your toes waiting for the bus to come. No, it's more than that. The idea is to, to bear up under pressure, to bear up under resistance, that there is even opposition that's pushing against you, and you, with much patience, exhort. And then he says, and instruction, didache. The idea here is you continue to teach sound doctrine. You don't, you don't compromise the truth. You, you just keep on keeping on teaching the truth and bringing the instruction Martin Lloyd-Jones said that preaching is theology on fire. That is combining exhortation and instruction. It's not either or, it's both and. I don't want just instruction from you, and I don't want just theology from you. I want theology on fire. That is gas and fire mixed together. That is the explosion of expository preaching. Only the expositor plays with a full deck. Only the expositor has everything going for him, both instruction and exhortation, both doctrine and hopefully a dynamic delivery. He goes on in verse 3 as we move to the fifth imperative verb, and it doesn't come till the beginning of verse 5. So verses 3 and 4 is really the setup for the first verb of verse 5. I need for you to know that. The verses 3 and 4 are very important. It would take, it's the only place here where he takes this much time 
for the setup of the imperative verb. So beginning in verse 3, he says, For the time will come, and, and there is a certain sense of really certainty about this, and that time came long ago in Timothy's day. It, it's here in spades right now. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The word they is very important. Because the word they refers to those in the church, not outside the church. Those who come to hear you preach. And they are the ones who accumulate accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. The time will come when they, in the church, and I think these are unbelievers in the church. That's why he says, do the work of an evangelist in verse 5. But the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They're not going to put up with it. They don't want theology. They don't want doctrine. They don't want exposition. What do they want? Well, just turn on Christian television. Just turn on Christian radio. Just go to the average bookstore. It says, but, here's what they want. Wanting to have their ears tickled. King James, it says, itching ears. It's it's a metaphorical expression, meaning they want to have good feelings. They want to be told what they want to hear. They want their egos massaged. They want no reproof. They want no rebuke. They want no exhortation. They want no instruction. They just want a feel-good religion. No talk on sin. It's just Joel Osteen on steroids. And then he goes on to say, they will accumulate... The they are these lost church members. They will accumulate, and the idea is they're just stockpiling them up in in a pile. They will accumulate for themselves, not, not for God, but for themselves, teachers in accordance to their own desire. They will fire the Bible preacher, and they will go hire the communicator. I told you yesterday, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician before he went into the ministry, and, and when people were trying to tell him what to preach on, he said, when I was a physician, I never let the patient write the prescription. And neither should you. Now, we want feedback. We, 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 we want to hear what's going on with people. And I want to know what they're thinking. There's a difference between having your say and having your way. And he says, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they work their way onto pulpit committees, and they work their way onto elder boards, and they work their way onto deacon boards, and that's why you're going to have to be with much patience and instruction. You're going to be like you're in the jungle with a machete, and you're just having to hack your way through. And so he says, 
and they will turn away their ears. And that verb is very interesting. The idea is to throw a bone out of joint. That there is such a knee-jerk reaction to your preaching the word that they throw their neck out of joint as they turn away. It's like repulsive to them. It's the last thing in the world. You're, you're their worst nightmare. But the good thing about a nightmare is you wake up. And they need to wake up. They'll turn away their ears from the truth. And that's another synonym for the word. It's the truth. Not a truth, the truth. It implies the exclusivity of the truth and it implies the comprehensive nature of the truth in the written word of God. Now, but you, that's emphatic. Now here comes the verb. But you be sober. And by that, he's not referring to physically, you need to be sober. He's talking about mentally and emotionally. Uh, The word, the Greek word means to be temperate, to be unintoxicated. And the idea is to be unaffected by all of this. To not cave in to the demands of those around you to squeeze you into their mold or to blow smoke in your ear. Don't become intoxicated by all this. Or to look down the street and see these other four churches, they're in building programs nonstop because what they are teaching down there is really nothing but the gospel of the broad road. It's the gospel of the wide gate. Don't become intoxicated with that. And like now want to emulate and buy into that. Don't become drunk with the spirit of the age. And the demands of lost church members. Be level-headed. Be unaffected by all of this. Now the sixth verb, endure hardship. Why would he say that? Isn't the ministry a party? The ministry is not sailing on a luxury cruise ship. It's sailing on a battleship. And you're going to have to endure hardship. Because when you show up, You may be the one guy in town who's the truth teller. And it's going to create quite a resistance. Endure hardship. It's one word in the Greek. And the idea is to undergo difficulty, to endure affliction, to be willing to hang in there during tough times. I'll just say this. It's a part of your sanctification. It's a part of your becoming humble. It's a part of your becoming broken. It's part of your becoming usable. It's a part of you being tested as to what do you really believe. But you're going to have to endure hardship. Listen, when I was in high school... I don't know what you call that here. Tim, what do you call that here? High school. High school. Okay, high school. 
I was a really popular guy. Everybody liked me. Can you imagine that? <laughs> uh, I was the quarterback of the football team. Now, American football, we play real football, okay? Okay, we don't wear little sissy shorts and run around and that kind of thing. We have a helmet, we have pads, and the reason for that is we're running into each other and there's collisions, contact sport, okay? It's manly football. Um, I was the quarterback of the football team. Hey, everybody loved me. They cheered for me. They gave me trophies. I'd go in front of the student body. Everybody wanted to pat me on the back. I went off to college. I went on a football scholarship. I played football. Um, the sororities cheer for you. The girls giggle. Uh, the, the whole thing. I mean, you, you're, you're like a popular guy. I, I go to seminary. Um, I, I had little Bible studies, but I worked with a professional football team, worked with a professional baseball team, wrote magazines. Man, every, everybody, I just, it was a great little life I had going. Then I graduated from seminary. All right, I'm God's gift to the world now. <laughs> you know, I go out and I pastor my first church and it, it was unbelievable. It's like flicking the lights on in the basement and all of a sudden the cockroaches and the snakes and, and, and everything just start popping out of the woodwork. And you have to endure hardship. Listen, people will either love you or hate you. You walk into a room, it's either duck or pucker. I mean, they're either going to take a swing at you or they want to kiss you on the lips. And how strange it is that these lines meet on the head of the same person. Um, I've had people name their children after me. I've had people call their dogs by my name. <laughs> I mean, how can the same person... How could I create such opposite reactions in people? I, I've had pregnant... I had once had a pregnant woman in church standing in front of the pulpit want to take a swing at me. I, I have other people won't stop hugging me. And it has nothing about, nothing about style. It's everything about the truth that you bring. And you now become a provocative person. And we're not looking. We don't walk around with a martyr's complex. We're gracious. We're kind. We're long-suffering. We try to look for points of common agreement. But the truth is red hot. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. Any of the last two verbs? Do the work of an evangelist. Why would he say that? Why would he say that to Timothy? Because where Timothy is preaching the word, there are a bunch of lost people. I think if we could see what God sees when we stand up and preach, we would be in shock how many people are actually religious but lost in the best of churches. My, my own three sons who sat like right here on the front pew and listened to me preach from age 3 to 18, compliant, obedient, supportive, fun, 
send them off to college. They go to the master's college. They listen to John MacArthur preach for four years. One of them for five years. You know, they, they start college in Luke 8, and they graduate in Luke 14, you know. <laughs> the pace MacArthur goes through a book in the Bible. <laughs> Their grandkids will be there for like Luke 18, you know. <laughs> they, they go through all of my preaching I baptize them. They go through all of John MacArthur's preaching. One of my sons ran the TV camera for John MacArthur's television ministry, so he had to be there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and listen to every sermon. They're not converted until after they graduate. And if you'd ask them, are you saved? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Would you go short-term missions? Oh, yeah. I brought my youngest son with me here three years ago. If we could see what God sees in the people that we preach to, our teeth would fall out of our mouth. Because there are so many unconverted church members. I remember one elder's meeting, an elder said, could I share something? I said, sure. He said, my wife was converted last night. I said, I would have thought you needed to be converted before she did. (laughs) That really surprises me. (laughs) We've been praying for you, (laughs) not her. We've been whistling just as I am every time we pass you. (laughs) She was the sweetest woman in the entire church. I mean, she's the poster child of Proverbs 31. She got up and gave her testimony, and we baptized her, and then that set off a chain reaction, people realizing, well, if she was lost and needed to be saved, what about me? Because I've been kind of playing the game and playing the charade. So, you've got to do the work of an evangelist. For you to be an expositor, you're going to have to also preach the gospel. And you're going to have to be an evangelistic expositor. Or you, you've gone AWOL and done your own thing. And I think one reason so many people react against expository preaching is they have heard such boring preaching from expositors. Just boring. Just lecture, lecture, lecture. And there's no zeal, no passion, and there's no persuasion, and there's no gospel, and there's no trying to to win people over and not trying to expose lost people. You're just up there mumbling out, a data dump for a sermon. Just throw in a few more word studies to fill up the last five minutes. You've got to do the work of an evangelist. When, when Jesus called Peter, James, John, and Andrew, what did he say? Follow me and I'll make you what? If you're not fishing, you're not following And it's not enough to cast the net. 
You're going to have to draw the net. It's not enough to state the gospel. That's just casting the net. You're going to have to draw the net and plead and urge people to give their life to Christ and and issue an invitation. And by that, I do not mean get up and walk forward. That's the last thing. I don't mean that. The whole sermon needs to be an invitation. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Enter by the narrow gate. What are are those verbs communicating to you? I mean, we've got to be calling people to come to Christ. You go read a Spurgeon sermon. You go read a Whitfield uh, sermon. Find out what's their favorite verb. Worst things could happen that you end up being Spurgeon. Come. Come to the waters and drink. Come to Christ. Oh, He loves for sinners to come to Him. He's the friend of sinners. He will gather them in. Just come. Come to the dear Savior. His arms of grace are open. The gates of paradise are swung open. That's out of sinners in the hands of an angry God. The door of mercy is now open. Oh, come, enter in before it's too late. This this should be an anchor point in our preaching. Do the work of an evangelist. The verb is do. Do. Purposely pursue a course of action. Don't just think about it, do it. Don't just write it down in your notes, do it. Don't just analyze it, do it. And then finally, the last verb. It's the eighth under the specifics, ninth in this whole list. Fulfill your ministry. Literally, this... Greek word for fulfill, and by the way, again, it's an imperative verb. Don't don't fill it up halfway. Fulfill your ministry means to bring full. It means to make full or to fill full or to fill to the full. That's the idea, fulfill. It's hard to get it into English. And the idea is, tell it all. Leave nothing unsaid. Leave no doctrine untaught. If it's in the Bible, teach it. Leave no promise undelivered. Leave no warning ungiven. Leave no duty unassigned. In the Reformation, there was sola scriptura. We we understand that, scripture alone. There's another one that's often forgotten, tota scriptura, all of scripture. That was the deal about Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Bollinger. 
They, they weren't just riding a hobby horse and preaching certain little texts that they wanted to preach on. They, they told it all. And one of the marks of Reformation preaching, here, here are the four marks of Reformation preaching. I'll just get to you real quick. Number one, it was, a, it was a Reformation of preaching, period. It was a return to preaching. Preaching was gone. Second, it was a return to biblical preaching. Third, it was a return to controversial preaching. And fourth, it was a return to preaching the doctrines of grace. Those are the marks according to John Broadus and his lectures on the history of preaching. But it'll be controversial. If it's not controversial, you're not preaching the Bible. It's the most provocative book ever been written. I mean, it'll shake things up. It'll shake your life up. It shakes my life up. It'll shake the saved people up. It'll shake up the unconverted. That's good. They need to be shaken up. They're sleeping the sleep of death. So, let me conclude with this. At the end, excuse me, not at the end, halfway into the Reformation, after Luther is converted in the castle church in the tower, after he has gone to the um, Diet of Worms, after he had gone to Leipzig and given his, his, his dispute, Europe was being shaken up. And people, how is this happening? So some men came to Luther and said, explain the Reformation. (laughs) Rome is toddling. This is going across the English Channel. Now Cambridge is under the influence, and it's spreading. Explain the Reformation. This is what Luther said. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince and never an emperor inflicted so much damage upon it. And then he concluded, I did nothing. The Word did it all. What needs to happen in South Africa is what needs to happen in America. Pastors just like you need to keep on unsheathing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to preach it, and to teach it, and to write it, and then go to sleep, and let God do His work. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is that you preach the Word. And on the last day when you stand before the Lord, that's going to be the question. Did you preach the word? Preacher boy, did you preach the word? Preacher man, did you preach the word? There's going to be some other questions asked. 
So it's not just that. Did you love your people? Did you have the highest motive for the glory of God? But you're going to be asked, did you preach the word? Did you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And did you cup your hands and lift your voice? And did you declare it in your generation? I'm going to close with a word of prayer. And, and then we're going to have a break, tea break. And we'll come back in. I went a little longer, but you really needed this, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing with you. Uh, we all need this. Um, but I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Tim, how long is the tea break? We can take as long as we need. Yeah, 20-minute tea break, coffee break. And we'll come back in, and we'll start to get into the material. Father in heaven, would you meet with us in these sessions? Would you draw near to us? Would you open our eyes? Would you hold up our arms? Would you renew our minds? Would you strengthen our voice? Would you hasten our feet to carry the message into the highways and into the byways? As we have looked at this, whatever part is encouraging, God, give encouragement to these precious people. And whatever part is convicting, may there be change. May there be redirection. May there be a new going forth from this place. Father, thank you for this opportunity. I ask your fullest blessing to be upon each of these. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.